Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. This podcast is brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tires, batteries, and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. My newest guest speaks to me under the assumed name of Layla. She's from Iran and talks to me under cover of anonymity from the safety of Switzerland, where she is now a citizen, about the current state of her country. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Now, unless you've been living in a bubble for the past few months, even years, it cannot have escaped your attention that there is turmoil. Some even use the word revolution in Iran. Turmoil is not new to that country. Listeners of a certain age will remember the revolution which toppled the Shah and brought the Ayatollahs and a repressive form of Islamic theocratic rule to power in 1979. I do, quite clearly. However, on a more more careful scrutiny, those who do not follow events there closely will find that there had been turmoil in Iran in 2009 and 2017 to 18. But this time is different. It's different in the most significant fact that the turmoil, the demonstrations, the civil defiance, the revolution has been led by Iranian women, very brave and very courageous, mainly young women triggered by the arrest by the so-called morality police of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Nasha Amini, who was on a trip to Tehran, for not wearing her hijab properly. Now, if you're not sure what a hijab is, it's the head covering worn in public by some Muslim women. She was taken away for re-education and died in police custody. Her death unleashed years of pent-up frustration and anger met by the customary violence and brutality, including executions and even a crude and brutal public hanging from the authorities against the civilian population across the country. It's something which should not be ignored. It's something which I did not want to ignore, but wanted to examine in a particular and insightful way. I needed a little time to reflect on how best actually to do it. Now, the Iranian diaspora is of a significant size around the world and is quite numerous in the Geneva region. I'm pleased to have long-standing friends among them and sought out someone, a woman to be precise, who could explain what is going on in her country from her perspective and be free to speak openly from the safety of abroad, from the safety of Switzerland. Now, my guest today is asked to be referred to as Leila, concealing her own name because she has family in Iran. Anonymity is prudent, and I'm sure that you, dear listeners, will understand. That wish of my guest today, I mean the act in itself, says a lot about the governance of that country. So thanks for making time for me, Leila, and thanks for inviting me to your home to record this interview. Most welcome, Michael. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. Now, to open our conversation, Leila, please tell me and our listeners a little about yourself and be as open about that as you feel comfortable. For example, I mean, how long have you lived in Switzerland? Well, ever since 1984... I've uh, lived in Switzerland, but in 1993, I went back to Iran, lived in Iran for 15 years, and then was lucky enough to get back to Switzerland. 
So you went to school in Iran, you went to university there, or did you go to university abroad? I went to school in Iran. I was lucky to go by then. It was uh, the rule of the Shah, of course, and I was lucky to go to an American school. Um, then I went to the university in Tehran. Um, it was then uh, that the revolution happened, two years later, and it was very tough times for everybody, I think. So, so you finished before the revolution started or after? Of the, just the, or you at I, university in, during that yeah, exactly. amazing time? Yeah, exactly. 1977, I entered the university. And in 1979, actually, the revolution happened. So for two years, uh, it was just like normal life, you know, <laughs> normal education as other countries in the world. But then everything uh, radically changed. My and, goodness me, um, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, there was um, a chaos in the beginning, uh, very chaotic. But, uh, well, we were then asked... Uh, to put hijab, uh, the scarf on, and um, wear uh, long mantos and uh, to cover ourselves, um, which was uh, something for us very far-fetched, but it all happened very so, fast. So tell me, uh, I mean, it's a big question uh, to ask, but I'll just let you answer it in the way you want to. How is it, in your own opinion, your own experience, that Iran has actually arrived at where it is today in its long and very flourishing history? Well, I really think um, uh, the revolution, the way it happened, it was um, very sudden. It was something that for, uh, for me in person and for my family, we hadn't even heard of Khomeini. We didn't even know that a person um, as such exists. But everything happened so fast. It was as if everything had been destined to happen. Everything was maybe planned to happen. But um, unfortunately, it happened. And um, we were all, uh, I don't know when uh, the Shah said uh, the silent majority. I think in a way he was right because the majority of the Iranians were silent majorities, and those who really uh, protested and um, started a revolution um, were a minority, a minority either connected to uh, different parties or factions, and of course religion has always had a very important role in Iran, and before uh, um, the Islamic Republic, nobody really knew what Islam is. Um, maybe the good thing about this um, um, revolution was that we all got a better picture of what a religion can be, especially Islam. But people listening might find it hard to understand that, particularly as the majority, the vast majority of people listening to this program will have never been. So their only, if you like, contact or knowledge of Iran is what they see through the television the television news and documentary. But I want to ask you something a bit more specific. If you're looking back to the time of the revolution in 79, which overthrew the Shah, why did the educated Iranian people follow a man like Khomeini? I mean, it's been explained to me by an Iranian friend that most Iranians, and you've just in a way intimated that, had never even heard of him. So was the rule of the Shah so bad that he deserve to be toppled? Could you just give us some insights into what was going on in that country? It's a, it's a big country, what, 50, 60, 70, 80 million people, 
So it's a big place. What was going on there that um, that he deserved to be toppled? Or uh, not at all. I really don't think that the rule was that bad. You know, it wasn't bad at all. If uh, realistically speaking, you know, everybody, all Iranians were living a better life. They all had all the uh, um, the necessary. Um, uh, the necessities, uh, everything, you know, we all, education was free. Um, uh, Iranians lived better lives, they were paid better, there was more money, economically speaking, Iran was in a very good situation. Um, I really, when it, um, I, I cannot, you know, I can still not understand why did um, all that happen, but I think in a way, um, there were always parties within Iran because uh, with the rule of the Shah, there was only one party, and that was the Rastakhi's party So in there's Iran. an organized political, when you say parties, you mean political parties. Exactly, yeah. political parties. Uh, but the leftists there, uh, always existed. The religious people were always, they, they were always against uh, um, the freedom and the liberty that was given by the Shah to the people, especially to the women in Iran. And they were frustrated in a way. And of course, the left, you know, there, there were different factions. Even I remember the, by then the Shah was saying always uh, the Islamic uh, Marxists. And everybody was making fun of this, you know, the, the expression, how can a Muslim be a Marxist, you know, but the Mujahideens, they were, they were actually, in fact, the Islamic Marxists, you know. Uh, so all these uh, factions and parties, political parties, they were working in Iran. They, they had their um, fans and uh, maybe not members by then because they were not out in the open. Uh, so in a way, everything was really working to topple the Shah. Well, can I ask you a particular question there, uh, Leila? Uh, that is, that you, you said that during the time of the Shah, women were allowed to and given the... So even before the Shah, was it more repressive for women before the Shah? And did he, in a way, open up the society? Um, I mean, in that respect, was he quite different from what had come before him? in the 20th century? Of course. Uh, well, tell me, because I don't know. Before, before the Shah, it was her job, you know, pe uh, the women were covered. It was like of that. Of course. I and see. It was uh, in uh, 1962 that the Shah was, gave, uh, uh, the, 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 allowed women to vote. We, we, you know, it was with the Shah that Everything happened really to oh, Iran. Many, many people may not know that, so it's good that you say that. It's good no, that you no, explain that. No, no, it was that. with him. Uh, the, uh, the, he <coughs> actually, the one thing that uh, also hindered his um, rule was um, the land reforms that he did in 1963 with the White Revolution, uh, with the land reforms. There were a lot of Iranian uh, land, uh, landlords, aristocrats, who had plenty of land. So what um, he did was to buy the land from them and give it to the peasants or the farmers or those who worked for the landlords um, to sell it to them 30% less than the cost. 
with 25 year uh, loans. And this was resented by the landowners. And exactly. And a lot of uh, the people that later became enemies of the Shah were actually the landlord families or the aristocrats. Uh, the uh, well, we can say the feuds, really. Mm. It's but, a feudal uh, system. Yeah, they wanted their exactly. land back. And, yeah. and so everything, in a way, worked uh, against him, you know. And unfortunately, it happened. Whereas if the revolution had not happened, I ask myself, what could have Iran been now? We're going, to come, we're going to come to that a bit later, um, later. but let me just ask you another question. I, I mentioned earlier that um, the majority of the people listening to us today have never been there, never been to Iran, and I've never been, and I'd, I'd love to go. I've been invited, but I've never actually, never actually had the chance to go. But I'd like to know, we're going to come now to the religious and the political aspect, because this is what's, in a way, seems to be on the television screens driving this current turmoil revolution. What, what is it in the governing regime's, current governing regime's particular version of Islam that seems to be so anti-female? Because that's what it comes across to the, um, to the foreigner. It seems to be anti-women. Exactly. It, has a, it is a religion that uh, women have half the rights as men, even when they are witnesses to women's uh, witness equals um, one man's witness, you know. We are, everything for women is in a way, um, women is like, um, I don't know, when they say an apartheid, gender apartheid, it is really uh, gender apartheid, religion, unfortunately. And um, maybe, I don't know, the first thing that they did was to ask the women to cover themselves. In a way, this was to disdain them, to uh, treat them as a second citizen, you know. But you said this was the case before the Shah anyway. Uh, before the Shah, women were covered, yeah. of course. Before the Shah, women were at the Qajar, for, mm. uh, for example, the dynasty. And uh, women uh, couldn't even get education, you know. Um, only the aristocrats had a certain education within their uh, uh, within uh, where with where they in where they lived. Really, it was a home. Uh, it was education. a very narrow, exactly. very narrow society and very narrow view of the world. Exactly, yeah. it was very closed. Everything was really very limited and restricted. But it's with Reza Shah that. Uh, uh, Women were liberated in the sense to uh, come out of the houses without hijab. And uh, for the first time, it was uh, Reza Shah who asked women to unveil themselves, you know. And through the, and through the, re the regime, um, they take this attitude, if you like, these rules towards women from the Quran. They, they back this up with religious exactly. quotation. Well, religious quotation, yeah. Everything that they do is, in a way, according to Quran. Mm. Quran rules, you know, that women have to be covered. Their shoulders, their neck, their uh, hair must be covered. 
Um, but you know, when you come to think of it, Quran is like a, a thousand four hundred years ago. It's exactly like the Middle Ages, you know. And now I believe what is happening nowadays is that Islam is also in a 1,400 years since the evolution from the, from, of this from religion. <clears throat> seventh, seventh century. Exactly. So maybe we are just ha um, in the Middle Ages of Islam. Maybe you know uh, there uh, we 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 are moving towards a Renaissance for Islam, and hopefully, people in Iran now have a much better view of what Islam is, how they can be hindered by Islam. And now, especially the younger generation, they don't want this, you know, anymore. Okay. The, if, when the generation Z, as we call it, the TikTok generation, the TikTok generation, they know everything. You know, they, luckily, they, um, most of them have a good knowledge of uh, foreign language, mostly sp uh, English. They can listen to what goes on around the world. They can see what goes on around the world. And they are, they are free. They, they, they just feel, why shouldn't I be able to live as a 16-year-old um, girl or a boy in England, in France, in no, wherever you know. I understand what you said. I'm going to quiz you a little bit more deeply about that in a moment. My guest today is an Iranian Swiss woman living in the Swiss Romande and wishing for the purposes of this interview not to use her real name for the safety of her family back in Iran. We're talking about the current situation in that country. Now, Leila, please forgive this sweeping generalization. And it may sound like a rather odd question, but I think listeners may be interested. I, I'm certainly interested to hear what you say. How do mothers bring up their sons? I understand that you've got uh, a couple of boys, or men, probably young men now. How do they bring up their sons in such a repressive environment? What values do they teach them? And what are their fathers? What values do they live by in, raising of, in the raising of their daughters? And I, I ask you the same question regarding how boys are brought up by their fathers. If you could just give us some insights into the dynamics of that. Um, exactly. Just to let you know, you know, I, w I went back to Iran in 1993 and lived there until 2008. Unfortunately, what I personally witnessed was very, um, in a way, it's very sad because I, as a mother, used to teach my uh, sons to prevaricate and uh, not to say the truth. For example, when they go to school and if they ask them, do you have, because normally they used to do it all the time, you know, the teachers, depending on what kind of a teacher uh, you're dealing with. Sometimes they were nice, <laughs> sometimes very dogmatic, very religious. And they were asking, they asked, um, they still ask, of course, things go on still, but uh, I use past tense because I'm no more living in Iran. Mm, they were asking uh, kids, do, do your parents um, uh, drink or do you have uh, um, a satellite um, or it was like uh, interrogation on interrogation yeah. exactly yeah. and it's sad you know when you teach your kids at a very early uh, age 
to prevaricate. That is really sad. But to live dual lives, you know. We lived inside, we lived a normal life. Outside, everybody had to pretend to be a, in quotes, Muslim. So know? the girls had to wear a hijab when they went outside. At what age did they start wearing a hijab? Seven. At the age of seven? Of as young the as age, that? Of course. No, I didn't know it was that young. Oh, yeah. At the age of seven, once they go to school, they have to wear a hijab. I see, I see. And in the mornings, oh, it was a lot. They, use, they had to say down with the USA and then go to classes. It, it's like a really, it's a, a brainwashing system, you know. That, uh, but when you come to think about it now, after 44 years of doing this, look the kids, that is the fourth, fifth generation, now they are protesting. Because they see this duality, they see, you know, people cannot pretend anymore. We, especially the young generation, they are not afraid. My generation and the generations after me, we were very conservatives. We were the type that we were taught to be obedient, um, to say yes, to have respect for the elderly, not to contradict, even though we knew that maybe we are right, but we were always said, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do this, no, no. But the difference is that it's the, it's the women, the young women that are leading this, the men are following. I mean, that, do you see that as being significant? Compared very with previous revolutions? Very significant with in a way uprising? that, you know, the. the the women now, the girls that we see out in the streets, they, they know what life is outside of Iran. They know the, uh, how uh, people live. And they have the bravery and the courage to get out. They are very brave. Very brave. Um, this is maybe one thing that distinguishes them from uh, the other generations, the generations before, is that they are tired, they are sick and tired, you know, they see that they have no future in Iran as it is now. So in a way, this is the only way to a normal life for them. So you've already sort of opened up a little bit into my next question, but just, just give us, the question I, want, I really wanted to ask you is in what way is this revolution or this uprising different? But tell me a little bit more about what access people, young people, have to what is going on in the outside world? I mean, can they watch, can people watch anything they want, or is, is there someone, if you like, is snooping to see that they're not watching Western television, or Western this, or Western that? How, what actually happens? Um, I can tell you that 20 years ago, most probably, they had far more power than now. To, to they being the, the people, government to constrain yeah. people from uh, yeah um, uh, they they used to even uh, ring uh, you had to open the door they uh, to come and see if you have a satellite or not and to get the dishes the satellite and um, find you and take uh, take the satellite uh, and the the dish and the box so they could them. come into your house and exactly do that. They, they were allowed to do anything. Uh, and they are still allowed to do anything. They still do it if they want to. But uh, one thing that is uh, different now is that the, the, the younger generation 
uh, they always uh, are very fluent in, uh, not all, but I can say at least 80% of the younger generation, they are fluent in English. So it's taught as a second language, is exactly. it, in, in schools? Exactly. Uh, well, it is uh, taught as a second language in schools, but it's them who are really going after it. Uh, some of them, they are self-taught. Uh, to make themselves competent exactly. and fluent in that language. Just, exactly. Mm. And uh, once, you know, they have the internet, they know the language, then they connect to the world. Of course. They, uh, they see what passes in the world, what, uh, what happens in the world, and they want to, do, to be the same, you know. They, they, they have the right but, and um, the bravery and the courage to go for it. So I, I really don't think there's a way back now. I was going to ask you that because um, that, that's my next question, which was this current, I use the word uprising and revolution almost interchangeably. Do you think it can prevail? I mean, what are the chances, in your opinion, of success? And just give me some idea of how you come to that assessment of success. Where do you think it's going? I personally um, believe that uh, there's no way back. Uh, this time, it must happen, you know. But the stakes are very high for the regime. Um, the stakes is very high for the regime, that's true. Um, but the problem is that it's not only civil rights of the people that is at stake, it's also economically speaking. Uh, the country is really has no future when you come to think of it. it with a, the dollar rate of uh, 70 rials at the time of the Shah and 420,000 rials now. Could you just repeat those numbers because they really are staggering. Uh, Say it 70 again. 70 rials, one dollar was 70 rials when Shah left Iran. And today? And today is 420,000 rials. 420,000 to one. Rials, exactly. <laughs> oh the cost of life is so high. Um, Inflation is staggering. What sort of percentage is inflation, roughly? Uh, you know, what they say, they say it's 200 uh, times, but it's, it's not 200 times. When you come to think of it, if uh, you, at, uh, when I was living in Iran, for example, a 500 gram yogurt was bought around 60, uh, 600 rials, okay? Now it's uh, six, 600,000 rials, one yogurt. For some yogurt. Uh, 500 grams yeah. of yogurt. Amazing. So it's a thousand times more. But yeah. what the government says, they say it's 200 times. It's because you know, of sanctions, and it's yeah. because of sanctions this is all happening. Exactly. Yeah. Not the sanctions, really. Yeah. It's just mismanagement mm. of the whole thing, you know. So it's competence uh, as well. Sa uh, sanctions, the problem is that uh, sanction, uh, you know, sanctions was just an excuse for the government to say, uh, to manipulate everything and to use it um, for all their um, weaknesses and uh, shortcomings. Um, I think that the whole thing is mismanagement. And unfortunately, Iran, what I believe is a, 
cacistocracy, you know, really, because people who are not meant for the job are doing the job, you know. It's a kleptocracy. Mm. Unfortunately, they steal and steal and steal, you know. If they hadn't stolen, if they hadn't, uh, in a way, sent all that money outside of Iran, if they hadn't used the, so much money for um, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, for Yemen, and for um, Palestine, and unfortunately, you know, um, when you come to think of it, 44 years uh, Iran has been uh, mismanaged, has been robbed of its resources, even resources in the sense of uh, economics and also its people, you know. Um, unfortunately, those who really could be very helpful for the country, most of them have emigrated. They left Iran um, because they could see no future in Iran. There are a lot of people in Iran who are very capable and who can really make Iran a, a, a very successful in a way to make it a good country. Um, unfortunately, they are not given a chance. Most of them are in prisons um, and uh, they are stopped. Yeah. Leila, last question. I just wanted to bring our interesting conversation to an end. Somebody once said that um, in revolutions, it's usually the best organized uh, that win in the end, not necessarily the people with the best ideas. If you're right, and the present revolutions should succeed, what or who will fill the vacuum that's left by the toppled regime? And separately, what do you think would be the impact of a change on the wider Middle East region? It's a big question, but I'm just interested to know what you have to say. Uh, yes, quite a big one, but uh, I believe, my personal conviction um, at least is that uh, with the uh, Crown Prince, Re with Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi, Iran can attain um, the referendum that everybody is looking for with the help of him. Because and where does he, he live? He lives in the States, he lives in, America. in Washington, I see. but he's traveling all the time, and he has been always a personality uh, who has been consistent in what he says. For 43 years, he has said that he wants democracy for the people of Iran, that he has, he's never um, wanting to be a monarch, he is not interested in being a king. He doesn't want any titles. He just wants the, to see the day that the people of Iran can choose their own government. Leila, look, thanks so much for telling your very informative story and all the insights that you've shared with me about Iran. I'm sure our listeners join me in wishing you the very best of outcomes according to the wishes of the Iranian people, as you mentioned, in this new year 
of 2023. My guest today, speaking under the cover of anonymity, using the name Leila, which is a famous name in Iran for the Iranians listening in, um, living in here in Switzerland and now a citizen of this country. Thanks again, Leila. Many thanks to you, Michael. It was a pleasure to have you here. Um, looking forward to seeing you after the revolution. Okay, after <laughs> the revolution. Thanks for listening to the McKay Interview podcast brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years and your one-stop shop for tires, batteries and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. You can find more podcasts on Anchor FM. Just type McKay Interview Anchor FM. And thanks again for listening.